This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite, with just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. Right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com, the lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. It's funny how so often those secrets get passed down and some smuggled down secretly. It's like he'd clap me on the back and then slip it into my pocket and I didn't notice. He's like the artful dodger. And maybe his mom would do the same thing to him. You don't know where you're getting it. You know, I would have said if I'd had to guess that he had been unfaithful, but I didn't know that. And we'd never talked about it. And I never, certainly would never have thought, like, I want to model myself on that guy who I can't get enough love from. That would be a mistake. Why would I want to do that? I was trying to be the opposite. That's Tad Friend, staff writer for The New Yorker and author of the memoir Cheerful Money, as well as the recent In the Early Times, A Life Reframed. Tad's is a story about stoicism, silence, and shame. It's also a story about a complex emotional legacy passed from generation to generation. A father, a son, a shared history of marital infidelity that leaves a great deal of damage in its wake until the cycle is finally broken.
I'm Danny Shapiro, and this is Family Secrets. The secrets that are kept from us, the secrets we keep from others, and the secrets we keep from ourselves. The first house I grew up in was in Buffalo, New York. It felt very dark. Um, I don't think it actually objectively was. I mean, there was probably just as much sun in Buffalo um, as in most other parts of the world, but it felt like the the house felt dark. And that's odd because I spent most of my time when I was young on the sun porch, which is uh, all entirely mullioned glass windows looking out on, in those days were still this sort of avenue of elm trees before Dutch elm disease took them all down. The reason I think the house felt dark is because I was alone. I was the first child and for four years the only child. And also because the living room felt to me and maybe actually was dark and my mom was beyond it in the kitchen, usually doing something. And it felt like that sort of almost like a moat between me and the sunlight and the rest of the house and her. And my dad wasn't around much. He was a Southeast Asian history professor at the University of Buffalo. Those first four years of darkness and isolation are pretty tough to shake. That's a fairly important time in anyone's life. And I blamed my mom for it without having any understanding of her own difficulties or what she was going through or her postpartum depression or her feeling left alone by my dad to deal with this baby that she hadn't really wanted, which on the one hand can make you feel worse, like who wants to be the unwanted child? (laughs) But on the other hand, you know, like, hey, here I am. And she started to do her best and she became a lot better mom later. And I felt like so many of the things that I like about myself actually come from her. I like my sense of whimsy. I like my sense of humor. I like my playfulness, and that's all straight from her. Soon, though, the darkness begins to lift. When Tad's brother and sister come along, the house becomes livelier, more jolly. His parents are warming to parenthood, becoming better at the job, and raising their proverbial game. When Tad is almost 11, the family relocates from Buffalo to Swarthmore, Pennsylvania. My dad became the president of Swarthmore College in 1973, and we were lived in a gigantic, colossal fieldstone house called Ulverstone. Well, it wasn't really called Ulverstone by anyone, but that technically was his name. And that sort of Tolkienish name um, felt right because it had a sort of goblinish feel somehow. Um, and my parents were both always super busy. I felt like that was sort of the end of my childhood with my dad in some ways. You know, we all had our own bedroom, you know, in this new big president's house. And there were three floors and just endless rooms. And it was gigantic and a nice place to run around and play. But a lot of it sort of also felt off limits because there were constant cocktail parties and dinner parties for the college events, which we were not invited to <laughs> and basically shooed away from. And also because, you know, we just didn't see much of my parents. And, you know, with the benefit of hindsight and being an adult myself now, I realize that they're both just insanely busy and overworked and doing their best. But it felt like that we were sort of not waving but drowning a bit in terms of trying to get their attention. Describe your father, who, who you call Day. Describe Day, both Buffalo Day and then Swarthmore Day. How did he change and what was that like? Buffalo Day coached my soccer team, the Panthers, um, and was excitable and enthusiastic about 
kicking soccer ball with me and coaching our team and you know taking me out for a hamburger after practice and he felt like a dad you know you could look from the dad on tv you know in a family show and then turn i might think my dad and i kind of nod that yep that's dad he felt engaged and then swarthmore day felt disengaged and preoccupied with faculty treachery and board uprisings and students camping out in his office and protesting the Vietnam War, which he himself was against. Um, and he gained a lot of weight and he felt harried and harassed and like he wasn't doing a very good job, which he probably wasn't for the first couple of years, but I think he got better at it. And it just felt like we were another claim on his time. So I'd never felt, I felt that he would hit baseballs to me in the yard sometimes for like 20 minutes after he got home, but often not. And it always felt like he had the sense of like, you know, a surgeon who's about to go into surgery and is kind of like mentally counting the minutes until, you know, he's got to go and do it. It had a feeling of like forbearance to him rather than a, a joy in it. My mom, she'd had like nine billion conversations with him about it over the years, beginning probably on like the second day in Swarthmore. <laughs> um, that was a big source of their strife during that period was just that he was never home and never available. So I think she didn't say too much. It was mostly the kids who were now grown up saying it, and which we hadn't really said before because we weren't asked to and were sort of psychically discouraged from delivering a verdict on the unhappiness. And I was probably the most unhappy, I'm thinking, about my sister maybe giving me a good race for it. Our brother in the middle has always seemed very equitable and able to get along anywhere and thinking the best of everyone. And he has sort of somehow, you know, grew up under a cabbage leaf in some different, slightly different universe than we did. So, but I think, yeah, my sister felt neglected and I certainly did. You know, I think their marriage appeared to friends and people on the outside to be magical. And they seemed to, in public, always be attentive to each other, taking cues from each other. They were married for more than 40 years. They had a really rough patch in Swarthmore where they were in therapy together. And I think my mother just felt neglected. And she wrote him a letter at one point saying like, you know, I'm not having any fun. Are you having any fun? And neither one of them was having a whole lot of fun. And I think she felt like he'd become sort of a pompous ass. And he felt that she was always nagging him and didn't understand all the challenges he faced. You know, they were reasonably good about not blowing up at each other in front of us because they're wasps and they would go blow up at each other, you know, in a distant region of the house uh, or take a walk or do something. But we still got the general drift of a kind of current of mutual unhappiness. And I think things sort of got better, sort of by and large, once my dad left that job. I think my mom made her peace with sort of being, we carved out her own life a bit. She started to become a painter. Um, she didn't feel like an appendage, which she was clearly as the wife of the President Swarthmore. I mean, there's a lot of just social duties of smiling at people and saying, oh, what a nice frock. And when she started to paint and she became a board member at my high school and took on more projects where she probably was using more of her gifts and not just sitting around waiting for the phone to ring. So that helped in the course of becoming a parent myself. and growing older and and I think kind of understanding my parents I hope better than I did I feel much closer to them 
and much more forgiving is probably the word, or and grateful too. Time has a way of allowing us a different understanding of the complicated people who raise us. As we evolve, our sense of our parents often evolves too. In midlife, Ted learns to think of his parents not just as parents, but as people too. Complex and multifaceted people. But before he reaches this point, when he's in college, something else strikes him about evolution. There's something I was reading about in a primatology class, and it was about this experiment that these insane scientists had done with uh, baby monkeys by taking them away from their mothers and then giving them these surrogate mothers who were these sort of, as I imagine it anyway, like, and I think they describe it as sort of a, a metal armature covered with some cloth, but in a very rudimentary way. It was like the bare minimum of monkeyness. And then they had these these sort of mother contraption monkeys. And the, of course the baby monkeys would kind of try to swarm all over this, you know, sort of nubbly, inert mom looking for comfort. And then they had all these things where they would they would blast like air out of the, um, the monkey mother's nipples at the baby to see how strong the instinct to go back to the mom was. And they had spikes that shot out of the, the abdomen. And it was like all these sort of insane, horrifying torture things that I, I almost couldn't read about them. But it actually, reading about it plunged me back into that state of being on the sun porch. And obviously my mom was not a metallic monster with air shooting out of her nipples as far as I know. But the experience, the sense of like desperately trying to swarm toward my mother for comfort and being rebuffed was very strong beneath that. And that it, it, it evoked in such a way that I kind of was in, intrusive. I kept sort of thinking about the baby monkeys when I was you know, going to class or eating lunch and or talking to friends in, in college. And I and it, I had to kind of almost like just push it all away with a great effort of will to not think about it because it kind of took, took me over. I never talked about it with my mom <laughs> for obvious reasons, but um, but it definitely stayed with me as a weird and unpleasant reminder of the weird and unpleasant four years that I'd spent kind of trying to get more affection and just maternal cuddling from her than um, she was capable of. Also while Tad is in college, he tries, as many college students do, to decide on what he'd like to do with his future. He considers pursuing law, but he keeps returning to the idea of becoming a writer. He'd seen both his parents write, professionally and otherwise, and it's a world that seems both familiar and appealing to him. I had been working in a magazine called The American Lawyer for my first year after college because I thought that it would be a great way to both write and also get exposure to what lawyers actually did all day. And that turned out to be true. Um, and the result was that I realized I did not want to be a lawyer. My dad had, was a historian and he'd written a, his first big history book, had won the big prize. And he'd written a novel that came out in 86 or 87 and got pretty good reviews. And he thought I started thinking of himself as like someone who could write more novels. And he did, but unfortunately couldn't get any of them published. But I didn't necessarily think of him as a writer when I was kind of in high school and college because he'd written one book and then his second book had been kind of put on hold while he was running Swarthmore College. So he wasn't really writing. And so I didn't feel, I think he still, I think he, he thought of himself a writer. He, it turned out he'd 
years later, I discovered that he'd been writing like lots of poetry in the, in the sixties and, um, and he'd been keeping these very extensive journals. Um, and I think he, he communicated with himself most effectively by writing down what he was feeling and then he could sort of know what he was feeling. But if he didn't write it down, it almost was like he didn't feel it or he didn't understand it. So he was almost writing to an audience of one a lot of the time, which later became an audience of two because I read all the stuff that he wrote. That's what I was just thinking is that he he was writing as a way of knowing himself. You know, he was elusive to himself. He was also elusive to you. Yeah, but the, the thing I didn't know was that he was elusive to himself. I thought he was keeping it from us on purpose. But I had sort of intuited that he somehow was reserving his inmost self for reasons unknown and that we were not getting it. My sister and I, my sister Timmy and I, both for some time sort of thought that had sort of a bit of a child's fable quality to it, where if we just say the right phrase, the rock will spring open and the, you know, like, and the steps will go down into the basement with the sacks of gold. There was something you said sort of like, maybe we can this time. And, you know, like, oh, what if we do this? Or what if we ask him about that? And I gave up at a certain point, <laughs> probably about 25 years ago. And my sister really didn't. I, you know, like, and I, we, I would talk with her about it and I would say, because she would often end a conversation, a bad phone conversation with him and be really kind of stricken by it. And, and I would, at that point, I was like, if you go to the potato store and they say they're out of potatoes, they don't have any potatoes. Like, I was like, they, you know, just thinking like, it's not going to happen. But there were some potatoes there. We just didn't know. And I remember, you know, there was a point late in my dad's life when I was somehow the one who was assigned to ask him about his plans for his memorial service, which was sort of a tricky conversation. Uh, he seemed to welcome it. He was like, he loved the idea of people celebrating his life and he had all these ideas, none of which seemed to involve any of his children speaking about him, but they, there were some eminent Southeast Asian historians we had in mind who would be able to really sum him up. And then as, once we sort of talked about all the, some of the details of this and that, who, who could talk, and I sort of asked him some other questions about this, this phase of his life and what was difficult and what was the best part. And he said something like, you know, the best part is getting the, the time and opportunity to really to reconsider some things and, and make up my mind in a different way about things. And I was thinking like, wow, this could be the moment where he says, you know, I, I always really loved you or, you know, I'm sorry that I didn't always express the deep feelings I have or some version of that. I was kind of like poised and like just like trembling, thinking this is going to be it. And I said, you know, well, you know, do you have any examples? And he said, well, I might be just about ready to change my mind about Franklin Roosevelt. <laughs> And I was sort of like, yep, all right, still no potatoes. We'll be right back. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S., that's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches 
fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat and support your weight management journey and right now save over 30 percent on smart metabolic burn at getsmartburn.com the lowest price anywhere that's getsmartburn.com don't delay transform your life with smart metabolic burn from brain md these statements have not been evaluated by the food and drug administration our products are not intended to diagnose treat cure or prevent any disease this is it your moment this is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. In the mid-90s, Tad is in his 30s when his mom is diagnosed with breast cancer. It metastasizes, and she becomes very, very sick. At this point, Tad's father is no longer president of Swarthmore College. He's running the Eisenhower Foundation. But when his wife gets sick, he steps down from his position and steps up as her caretaker. He's attentive, staunch, and loving. It's in this phase of their relationship that Tad's parents can reconnect and find joy with one another, even in the face of grave illness. And my mom, unfortunately, you know, died in 2003. So that cut short what would have been, I think, a great late phase of their, of their lives, you know, the last 15 or 20 years. 
And, you know, it turned out later on, my dad had made me his literary executor. And when I was reading, there was papers that he had been unfaithful to her once in the 60s in Indonesia, which he told her about, which precipitated her big storm, honestly, in their marriage. And then later on, a couple of other times, which he didn't tell her about as far as I can tell. I think he felt like she, once he told her about the first time that he was unfaithful to her, kind of cut off that part of their relationship, the intimate part in some way, that the intimate physical part. And none of this was, you know, they weren't talking about this with us, believe me, but um, this was again, just something I did, didn't really know about until after he died. If someone had asked you uh, before he died, do you think that your father was unfaithful to your mother? What would you have said? Yeah, I would have guessed that he was with no evidence, with no actual evidence I could sort of feel some kind of, in some subsonic frequency kind of way, his sense of dissatisfaction and the way he would sometimes light up around other women. So I would have guessed that. You know, if, if you'd said she had been unfaithful, I would have been really shocked. She could be flirty, but it, would, it was a, clearly that was like just in a kind of like dinner party hostess kind of way. In the role of his father's literary executor, as Tad pours over Day's writings, he discovers the specificity with which Day recounted his extramarital affairs. Three women, five nights, 41 years. Day had done the math. There was writing, too, of Day's mother's many affairs, which had impacted Day. But even before Tad discovers the scope of this generational infidelity, he spends his early adulthood with a nagging and persistent fear of intimacy and a fear of being vulnerable. He has a desire to be known, but also to be hidden. These fears cause him to stress test his relationships, to test the loyalty of the women he dates. During the same period of his life, he's also searching for father figures, though at the time, he doesn't realize that's what he's doing. I think I was doing both things without knowing them, without understanding. It wasn't like I said, I shall stress test this relationship and observe the results and write a you know, new hypothesis, because I was dimly aware of how fragile and insufficient I felt in a relationship, how I felt like when, you know, if someone really needed me to be there for them, or, you know, like if I had to be, get married or and be around someone all the time, and they could see me and, you know, like, I was extremely closed off. I could kind of I can't remember what that term is on the Myers-Briggs thing, but whatever it is where you you can be an extrovert for like 42 minutes at a party and then exhaust you and then you have to like go lie down with a compress over your eyes. I was that. I wasn't quite lying down with a compress, but I was like, I could engage with people, but then I really needed or wanted space because I think I felt like they're getting too close. You know, the the hounds are, (laughs) the hounds are people who actually want to know who I am are being and therefore, you know, time to run away. I would like to retroactively apologize to all all of my friends and particularly any girlfriends from my teens through my early 30s. And um, I was terrible and I apologize because I only later on began to realize how terrible it was. I did, you know, it was like the stress testing was just sort of like more of almost like pushing a pressure relief style of like, you know, well, you know, I won't be in danger of intimacy if I am also pursuing this other person. And the the way that I think think that was linked to my equally 
unknowing search for father figures is that I was looking for some kind of model for what I should be doing with my life and how I should be a man. It felt like my dad wanted to be some kind of version of him where everything was processed through your brain and nothing was processed through your heart too. And I felt like even though I wasn't very good at processing good things through my heart, that's what I wanted to do. Um, so I was looking for people who seem better at it and who seem to have access to their feelings and, you know, who either took joy in daily life or who seemed savvy about, you know, other people's feelings. And I sort of thought, well, if you could be savvy about other people's feelings, then maybe there's a way of co-locating my own, triangulating, you know, where I am by seeing where everyone around me is. It was a kind of me blindly groping my way towards, as it turned out, towards uh, decades of misery. <laughs> but uh, I didn't, as I did, I was hoping that it would work out better. I think objectively, my dad seemed like, you know, he was a decent husband. But I think it's rare that people say, I really want to have exactly my parents' marriage. I mean, there are aspects that, you know, that you end up having whether you want to or not. And usually, you, and you're like, oh, okay. And there may be one or two things you would like to have. But for the most part, you're like, you kind of know the way that goes and you want something. It would be great if your parents came with a handbook. And you could just like look through it or like a set of instructions, even in like bad English, you know, that from made somewhere far away. And you get this sort of printed out little mimeo sheet that says your dad was raised by two wasps in Pittsburgh. His father was a total alcoholic who was a nice but extremely ineffectual man who, you know, was fired from his last job at 43 and never worked a day in his life after that. Your father could never really respect him, even though he loved him. And your father's mother um, lost respect for her husband and had numerous affairs that were widely known. And your father was embarrassed about that and never quite worked through his feelings about women as a result. That would be really handy. I mean, you wouldn't be ready for it at age three or four, but it'd be nice if you, it sort of like became, you know, if like in a Harry Potterish way, someone would send an owl for you with these little updates every now and again that would be helpful. Because I didn't get that information. I didn't really have any picture at all of my grandparents because we didn't see much of them, his parents anyway, until I was an adult. And by then, of course, as you were saying, like it's all the streams have already moved around the rock and you're already set along your way pretty well. What Tad calls blindly groping, I'd call actively thoughtfully searching, searching for a partner, searching for answers about his family, and searching for answers about himself. But, of course, in order to find answers, he must first ask questions. He must put himself under the microscope to uncover why he's been so closed off. He seeks and engages in therapy with a Freudian analyst and also embarks on group therapy, a particularly scary endeavor for someone with a limited threshold when it comes to vulnerability and social interaction. Well, there was an aspect of, like, aversion therapy, <laughs> whereas, like, my worst fear like exposing yourself to it. Like if you don't like flying, you look at video plane crashes or something. And it was really hard. The first might've been an hour and a half, but spending that, I, at the end of it, I was I was wrung out. And I, even if I hadn't said it a damn thing, which I pretty much didn't for the first bit, except to kind of enigmatic remarks about other people, but I didn't say anything about myself. But I still was exhausted by just the, the sheer vibrating emotionality of it all. 
Exhausting and emotional are good words to describe this time in Tad's life. It's around the year 2000 now, the millennium, and it appears the hard work he's done on himself is paying off. He's opening up in therapy. He's met a woman, a writer named Amanda Hesser, who he marries just a couple of years later in 2002. Then, of course, the asteroid of his mother's death comes in 2003. It's an intense time, to say the least. And just a few years later, in 2006, Tad and Amanda have twins. They're building a life together in Brooklyn. Two talented writers with robust careers and wonderful little kids. But that generational scope of infidelity presents itself to Tad. And he succumbs to it, just like his dad, just like his grandmother. I'm struck by there's this moment in your book where you quote something that Day writes, which is, I seem to be the prisoner of my history, regrettable as that may be. And it's right after this line of days, I seem to be the prisoner of my history, regrettable as that may be, that then you write, I cheated on Amanda in 2008. And that juxtaposition just felt to me like it was you acknowledging that you, too, were a prisoner of of your own history. And you go on and you write, having long feared being known, I had cheated and lied in ways that gave credence to the fear. Right. We'll be back in a moment with more Family Secrets. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. And right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com, the lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, 
Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring, but don't know where to start? Fisher Homes is your solution. Your new home should reflect you from the front door to the kitchen and even your outdoor space. Start your journey by selecting your ideal home site, like in a cul-de-sac or that's tree-lined, and then choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans. Bring it all together at our Lifestyle Design Center. Let Fisher Homes be your new home solution this spring and start making memories at fisherhomes.com. Tad's book and the process of writing it thus become multifold. It's a way to unpack and confront this fear, a way to understand his dad, to understand himself, and to reckon with the secrets that shaped them. The genesis of writing the book was I emotionally had sort of given up on my dad and achieved a kind of like friendly, dutiful, loving civility. You know, I felt like I tried to get more out of him and that never really took. So I sort of had just decided, okay, here are the limits. And then I, I sort of rubbed along in that way, you know, thinking about him until suddenly I realized like, he's, he's getting old. He's falling down. He is, he needs help. And when he had his first big thing, he went down to the hospital and talked to the doctors and realized like, there is a date here that's coming where he's not going to be here. And I think that had an effect. I think the book almost grew out of that trip down to the hospital where the resident was basically saying, you know, like, it's a slow or maybe even medium speed or maybe even quick, you know, slide from here. It's not going to get better. And realizing that, I think I was started to feel like, well, there's only so much time to keep deferring, you know, one last Hail Mary <laughs> that maybe can make this all work and answer so many questions and make me feel better about myself. Because I'll say, I felt if my dad's re- reserving his best qualities from me, they're must be a judgment that I'm not worthy of them. So I started to write, you know, I started keeping notes and, and kind of throwing stuff into a file about my dad and my memories of him and also and also about our, our own family, like Amanda and me and our two kids. Like, you know, here I am becoming a dad myself. How am I doing in comparison to my own dad? And I did uh, turn that book in and then my dad got sicker and died. And that felt like I knew I needed to revise the book and I knew I wanted to like come back at it fresh and then he made me his literary executor so I was reading through you know we were cleaning out his house to sell it and we had 20 big steel file cabinets crammed with files and there was a whole other storage shed full of files and there were files on top of his desk and files on top of his bureau and files all over the floor and it was kind of a big mess. He'd been very, very meticulous and organized and like Dewey Decimal slash alphabetical until a certain point. And then he kind of just said, ah, fuck it. And <laughs> started putting shit everywhere in the last like 10 years of his life. And so it really wasn't organized. And I, I maybe he had, there was a system, but I couldn't decipher it. So I was just kind of going through it all and never sure what, you know, what's going to turn out to be like tax returns from 1963 and what's going to turn out to be his poems and his journals from 1967. And in the course of that, I realized he was a much different man 
than I had thought. He was much more emotional, much more sensitive, much more awake to and alive to life in every way. He was, you know, he really felt things deeply, but he, the problem was he couldn't convey them to us very well. There's some, some kind of like, I almost think of him as like, you know, those trumpeters and he can trumpet. And then he, like, as soon as he saw us, the, the mute would come over it. I don't know why. I think he just felt like the dad should be this sort of regal, <laughs> regal figure who um, sits, sits in a chair, like, aka a throne, and pronounces. And it's like, no, that's that's. I don't know where you got that. That is totally wrong. So, realizing all that, I re- rewrote the book, not completely, but I, you know, I recast a lot of it and I added all this material. And so I'd written the second version, and I wanted Amanda to read it. She read it. She was shocked about my dad's infidelities, um, as I had originally been just reading about them because he'd written, he had files of his premarital affairs and lots of stuff about erotic dreams he had, including about one of them. He'd had at the time in the 90s about a girlfriend of mine, which is kind of weird to read. You're like, what? <laughs> no. Then you can't unsee that. You know, you're like, I wish I had, I wish I'd somehow skipped over that particular one. There's a bunch of stuff that, you know, like was candid because he did think he was going to be writing for himself and without getting into all the gory details in the second version of the book i had tried to convey the the much fuller rounder more passionate more flawed person who you know more human person that he was and amanda she loved my dad and admired him and i think she felt disabused in reading it and felt like he treated my mom badly and then we're, we're talking about it and i said something like I'd had more time with it all and I but I said something like you know well I know what you're saying and I hear you but I also think you know she could be tough too which I still think is true um and I said I also think it was a pretty good marriage all in all which I also think is true with reservations in that if I wouldn't want to have it be our marriage but Amanda who was very emotionally sensitive somehow picked up on what I was saying and thought I was referring or in some coded or unconscious way to our, our marriages and mine. And so um, when I was out the next day, she started reading in my journals and she, even though I thought I had, you know, when I was writing my journals, I didn't want anyone to read them, but I didn't expect anyone to read them. So, so I had written about with various degrees of candor or various degrees of openness about my infidelities. So that began the worst period of our lives. The ways in which I felt like I was a prisoner of my history, there's a natural assumption that sometimes people can make that if, you know, someone's having an affair in a marriage that they maybe they're not satisfied with their partner or they're not getting what they need from their partners, they're seeking it outside the marriage. I think that does not apply here. I, I had cheated on pretty much everyone before Amanda. I it was just I was built say I was built makes it sound like someone else did it. I, I was, you know, I'm totally responsible. I'm an adult. I did these things. I cheated. I was unfaithful. I behaved terribly. I lied. She did all that crappy, crappy, horrible stuff that makes me still feel incredibly ashamed and mad at myself. And Amanda and I had issues in our marriage that I talk about in the book. Even if we had I'd had zero issues in our marriage, even if I'd been like just overjoyed every single day, which is hard to have in any marriage. And, and then there was a lot of times I really was overjoyed with Amanda. But even if I'd been overjoyed all the time, I still probably would have cheated because I felt so badly about myself and I felt so needy and I felt so insecure. And I, you know, I think I was just building a compartment that 
one more bulkhead against intimacy, full, true intimacy, and unconsciously replicating my dad, who does the same thing. But I didn't know that. I, you know, like it's funny how so often those secrets get passed down and some smuggle down secretly. It's like he'd clap me on the back and then slip it into my pocket, and I didn't notice. He's like the artful dodger. And maybe his mom would do the same thing to him, you know. Like you don't know where you're getting it because I didn't. I didn't. I would have, you know. I would have said if I'd had to guess that he had been unfaithful, but I didn't know that, and we'd never talked about it. And I never, certainly would never have thought, like I want to model myself on that guy who I can't get enough love from. That would be a mistake. Why would I want to do that? I was trying to be the opposite. I was trying to be like Mr. Super Sensitive Guy. You know, I'm going to do all this therapy. And then it turned out, well, he'd been doing therapy too. <laughs> lots and lots of therapy. So on the one hand, Tad is in therapy. He's working on himself in all sorts of ways, as did his dad. But sometimes, even in therapy, we don't go to the scariest places. It's ironic, I suppose, but in the inner sanctum of a therapist's office, where it's safe to expose our demons, sometimes we just don't. The shame is too large, too looming, too terrifying. Tad never addresses his fears about his infidelity with his therapist. He never addresses his truths. He realizes later that this doesn't make sense, paying a professional only to present a fabricated version of yourself. I was never aware of how much shame I was carrying around until Anna discovered how terribly I behaved for years in our marriage. And then I was plunged right into this big barrel of it and it felt really awful. And having access to the shame, being aware of it now, like, and having it pretty easily, you know, even talking with you now, at times when we talk about my behavior, you know, I feel that clammy, disbelieving, but totally having to accept sense of shame that this is what I did and this is how I betrayed Amanda. Um, and also the accompanying sense of like, what kind of person does that? But I also feel like there's some, there's some point, which I maybe not at yet, but I could see in the future where, you know, you might, it's not, it's like incorporating it so it doesn't feel like an alien part of you. It feels like, okay, there's the shame. And it's just, you know, it's just like, okay, there's the dog. Okay, there's the kitchen sink. Um, feels like a useful thing at some point because it's like, well, I did do that. And it's not like something that swept over me and possessed me. It's like part of who I was. I will never do it again. But I know that I had that capacity and I should be, you know, mindful of that. Well, and you're also owning it because... I mean, I, I don't just mean with Amanda and with yourself, but making the decision to to go there in this book means that you're not sweeping anything under any rug. You're just like, no sweeping. And that, you know, strikes me as very brave um, and necessary if you were, were going to write this book. The book wouldn't be true if, you know, you wrote about, about Day's infidelities and then pretending that it wasn't another generational layer to that yeah it felt even when i was writing the second version of the book like it felt that i was aware of the that i was sweeping my own behavior under the rug and it felt that felt false to me and wrong and i didn't like it 
but I didn't also at that point feel like, oh, I, well, that's a great opportunity for me to write about this. Um, yeah. Because, <laughs> I, I, um, you, know, you know, that would be revealing my shame to everyone. And now I am. And, you know, I would never have done it if Amanda hadn't agreed with me that, that we should, that I should do it and hadn't wanted me to do it and hadn't read it and made sure, you know, like the last thing I would ever want to do it having hurt her so badly is hurt her more with the book. And so if she hadn't wanted me to, I would have just pulped it and that would have been bad. But she did. And I feel like Amanda has been the one who has been brave to like take me on again, knowing that I was not the person that she thought I was and was living with for all those years and that I had unexplored rooms that she didn't know about. And I think that's that's the big act of bravery because if she would have been would have been perfectly reasonable and emotionally plausible for her to say, you know, no way, I'm out. So I'm grateful every day that she didn't. You know, you write toward the end of your book, being exposed was a harrowing but necessary precursor to being seen. And having those unexposed rooms be exposed seems like a great gift. Yeah, it was the thing I probably most feared and before it happened, and the thing I am most grateful for now that it has happened. It was the great psychoanalyst and writer Donald Winnicott who once wrote, It is a joy to be hidden, but disaster not to be found. Here's Tad, who has been found and found himself at last, reading one last passage from his stirring book. I identify strongly with those baby monkeys. I couldn't stop thinking about them. I feel a jet of air in my eyes and black vertigoes I fell away. The feeling was so intrusive that I stuffed it into the memory hole where it wouldn't trouble me anymore. Now I wonder if, given time, the monkeys would have eventually retreated to the corners of their cages. Because that's what I did. I retreated with many a backward look, but I took the compressed air hose with me. I'm afraid I left you alone a good deal when you were young, Mom said to me once, regretfully. Brightening, she added. But the result is that you learned to read very early, and now you're a writer. Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. Molly Zakur is the story editor, and Dylan Fagan is the executive producer. If you have a family secret you'd like to share, please leave us a voicemail, and your story could appear on an upcoming episode. Our number is 1-888-SECRET-0. That's the number zero. You can also find me on Instagram, at Danny Writer. And if you'd like to know more about the story that inspired this podcast, check out my memoir, Inheritance. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat 
balancing glucose levels and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. And right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com. The lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring, but don't know where to start? Fisher Homes is your solution. Your new home should reflect you from the front door to the kitchen and even your outdoor space. Start your journey by selecting your ideal home site, like in a cul-de-sac or that's tree-lined, and then choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans. Bring it all together at our Lifestyle Design Center. Let Fisher Homes be your new home solution this spring and start making memories at fisherhomes.com. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s, dance away with hip-hop beats, and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.